Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 75. Where do you go when the record is over? Welcome to episode 75, yes, 75 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and I'm spending this special anniversary episode flashing back 40 years to 1977, which happens to be the year I was born. And I'm going to be taking a look at one of the biggest releases of the year. A movie that was not only a huge hit, but made a megastar out of its lead actor. And was a pop culture phenomenon that helped define the late 1970s. If you haven't guessed what it is based on the music at the top of the show, it's the iconic John Travolta film Saturday Night Fever. I'm going to be taking a look at the film and giving it a review as well as take a look at its soundtrack, which at the time was the best-selling soundtrack ever. And I'll do it right after this. Generation Star Wars is speaking up and sharing its story. I'm Andrew Leyland. I'm David Michelini. I'm Tom Panneries. I'm Steve Glosson. I'm Matt Hunsworth. I'm Scott Gardner. I'm Ryan Shaw. I'm Paul Herman. I'm Jimmy Mack. I'm Ryder Waldron. I'm Justin Bulger. I'm Joseph Tavano. I'm John Jackson Miller. I'm Concetta Parker. I'm Steve Sansweet. And this. And this. And this. Is my Star Wars story. Is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story my star wars story my star wars story my star wars story monthly at mystarwarsstory.com and available in the itunes store Just dance together, and uh, nothing more, nothing personal. 
listen, it can't last forever. It's, it's a short-lived kind of thing. But I'm getting older, you know, and... You know, I feel like, I feel like, you know, so what? I'm getting older. Does that mean, like, I can't feel that way about nothing left in my life, you know? <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> So, Saturday Night Fever is the disco movie. There are other disco movies. Some of them are campy. Xanadu, for example. And some of them are terrible. I'm looking at you, Don't Stop the Music. Plus, there's that special episode of Chips where Ponch and John deliver a baby on a disco dance floor and become known as the Doctors of Disco. But honestly, if you're going to present somebody with... A defining look at that particular era of popular culture. The first movie you are going to go to is Saturday Night Fever. It's directed by John Badham, who also has a number of TV credits to his name, as well as movies such as War Games, American Flyers, Stakeout, Short Circuit, Bird on a Wire, The Hard Way, Point of No Return, Another Stakeout, and Nick of Time. And while that's not Scorsese level of directing, it's a... Solid resume, and he's never seemed to want to work for over the years. Anyway, it was directed by Badham from a screenplay by Norman Wexler that was based on an article by Nick Cohn called Inside the Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night, which was published in the June 7, 1976 issue of New York Magazine. You can actually read the article online, and I'll put a link in the show notes for it, but it's actually worth the read because it's one of those profile pieces of the subculture that we've seen quite a few of over the decades. I can imagine, too, that this is actually one of the first ones. Although, don't hold me that, because I'm just talking out of the top of my head here, and for all I know, there were generational profile pieces written well before the 1970s. But it's well written, and I think the first few paragraphs really get us into the mood of the piece, as well as the feel of the movie, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read them. Within the closed circuits of rock and roll fashion, it is assumed that New York means Manhattan. The center is everything, all the rest irrelevant. If the other boroughs exist at all, it is merely as a camp joke. Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, monstrous urban limbo, filled with everyone who is no one. In reality, however, almost the reverse is true. While Manhattan remains firmly rooted in the 60s, still caught up in faction and fad and the dreary games of decadence, a whole new generation has been growing up around it, virtually unrecognized. Kids of 16 to 20, full of energy, urgency, hunger. All the things, in fact, that, that the Manhattan circuit, in its smugness, has lost. They're not so chic, these kids. They don't haunt press receptions their opening nights. They don't pose as street punks in the style of Bruce Springsteen or Parade of Rock and Rambeau. Indeed, the cults of recent years seem to have passed them by entirely. They know nothing of flower power or meditation, pansexuality or mind expansion, no waterbeds or Moroccan cushions, no hand-thrown pottery for them, no hep jargon either, and no Pepsi revolutions. In many cases, they genuinely can't remember who Bob Dylan was, let alone Ken Kesey or Timothy Leary. Haight-Ashbury, Woodstock, Altamont, all of them draw a blank. 
Instead, this generation's real roots lie further back, in the 50s, the golden age of Saturday nights. The cause of this reversion is not hard to spot. The 60s, unlike previous decades, seem full of teenage money. No recession, no sense of danger. The young could run free, indulge themselves in whatever treats they wished. But now there is a shortage once more, just as there was in the 50s. Attrition, continual pressure. So the new generation takes few risks. It goes through high school obedient, graduates, looks for a job, saves and plans, endures. And once a week on Saturday night, in one great moment of release, it explodes. Now, the article itself is a pretty long one. Uh, it follows a character named Vincent, who is a, quote, name change to protect the identity of the person type of person, much like we saw, say, with Fast Times at Ridgemont High in Cameron Crowe's original book. And a number of elements from the film are lifted directly from the article. But the interesting thing about this is that sometime in 1991 or so, Nick Cohn confessed to having made up the entire thing. The Wikipedia article actually has a pretty cool summary of that whole controversy. So here's a little bit. Originally, the article was published as a piece of factual reporting. However, around the time of the 20th anniversary of the film, Cohn revealed that the article was actually a work of fiction. After persuading New York editor Clay Felker to let him write an article about the 1970s disco scene, Cohn, a newcomer to the United States, set about researching the, Amazon, the American working class subculture he was trying to cover. One night he traveled to Bay Ridge, Brooklyn to visit the 2001 Odyssey Disco. However, when he arrived, a drunken fight was taking place outside the club, and one of the participants rolled over in the gutter and threw up on Colton's trouser leg, leading him to return to Manhattan. Despite this brief visit, Cohn did notice that the scene was surveyed by one clubgoer, standing in the doorway and calmly watching events. Club Cohn returned to the club subsequently, but the young man wasn't there. To overcome his lack of familiarity with the New York disco scene, Cohn combined the image of the figure outside the club with people he knew from his youth, including a gang member from the northern Irish city of Derry, where Cohn had grown up, and a young man he knew in England. My story was a fraud, he wrote. I had only recently arrived in New York. Far from being steeped in Brooklyn's street life, I hardly knew the place. As for Vincent, my story's hero, he was largely inspired by a Shepherd's Bush mod who'd I known in the 60s, a one-time king of Gold Hawk Road. For additional detail, Cohn returned to Bay Ridge during the day to get a better feel for the area. On the 40th anniversary of the article's publication in 2016, Cohn said that he had thought that such a fictionalized piece would not be published in the contemporary press. It le reads me to me as obvious fiction, albeit based on observation and some knowledge of disco culture. No way could it sneak past customs now. In the 60s and 70s, the line between fact and fiction was blurry. Few editors asked tough questions. For the most part, it was a case of don't ask, don't tell. So yes, the whole thing is fabricated, but if you read the article like it is a work of fiction and not nonfiction, it's still an interesting read, and it's a great piece for the basis of a movie. Furthermore, there's still something very true to life about the movie, which is what I'm going to get to in my synopsis and review. Saturday Night Fever, the film, was released on December 14, 1977, went on to gross $94 million, making it the fourth highest grossing movie of 1977, behind Smokey and the Bandit, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and Star Wars. Obviously, it was a huge hit on its original release, and it grossed quite a bit for an R-rated movie. In 1979, it was re-released with some of the scenes trimmed down so that it could get a PG rating. Personally, I watched the R-rated version, which at the time of my recording this was available for streaming on Hulu, although it might not be anymore. You'll have to check. But it's also been released on DVD and Blu-ray. I've heard that there's a director's cut that runs about 6 or 8 minutes longer than the R-rated version's 118-minute runtime, but that's not what I saw. I saw the original theatrical release. The film was shot on location in the Bay Ridge area of Brooklyn and other places in the New York City area, including the Verrazano Narrows Bridge and locations along the Belt Parkway. In fact, the locations of this movie would make a great walking or driving tour if you're up for it. And the movie has what I honestly think is one of the best opening sequences in cinematic history. 
I know this is saying a lot, especially considering that comparing these two movies is comparing apples to oranges, but it's right up there with Star Wars, which came out about six months before this, in its effectiveness. Let me describe it to you. I'll break it down. And I'll provide a clip in the show notes so you can watch it. We start with an aerial shot of the Brooklyn Bridge. We zoom away to see Lower Manhattan. Then the scene shifts to an aerial shot over the Verrazano and descends into Bay Ridge itself. An elevated subway train passes. We get John Travolta's name, and then Stayin' Alive kicks in. And we see a pair of shoes in the window of a store. A pair of black pants appears, and the guy wearing them compares his brown shoes to those black shoes before walking down the street. The entire time, we're only seeing his feet, his legs, and then we slowly pan up to see that it is John Travolta, holding a paint can and strutting. And I mean strutting down the street. He's checking out hot women. He's getting two slices of pizza, stacking them and eating them at once. He's stopping by a store to put money down on a really ugly shirt. And there's this mix of close-up shots from below, shots of his feet, and point-of-view shots that just tells everyone in the audience that Travolta not only owns this street, he is going to own this movie. And at about the 320 mark, when John Badham's name finally fades as the opening credits finished, you've gotten so much exposition of your main character, as well as the film's setting. I honestly could watch this sequence again and again and again, just to see how much is in it. I mean, all it is is a guy carrying a paint can down the street, but it's such a complete scene. Like, it should be used as part of a course in storytelling in a film. And that's just the opening. I mean, let's get to the synopsis. John Travolta plays Tony Monero. Tony Monero is a 19-year-old Brooklyn kid living in a, working in a hardware store and living at home with his parents, his grandmother, and his younger sister. His older brother, Frank Jr., is currently at the seminary, which causes his mother to blast herself every time she says his name. Tony really doesn't have much going for him in his life. He works his relatively dead-end job, and he's got a couple of neighborhood friends. Joey, played by Joseph Kelly, Double J, played by Paul Pape, Gus, played by Bruce Ornstein, and Bobby C, played by Barry Miller, who I actually recognize because he played Ralph Garcia in the 1980 movie Fame. Also hanging around with these guys kind of on the outside is Annette, and she's played by Donna Pescow, whom I, and probably only I, remember as Evie's mom on the 1980s syndicated sitcom Out of This World. Yeah. Anyway, the thing that keeps Tony going in life is every Saturday night when he goes to the 2001 Odyssey Dance Club Disco and rules the dance floor. The first Saturday night we see him there, he owns it. After dancing, the group goes to the Verrazano, parks their car along the side of the bridge, and fools around on the railing, freaking Annette out by jumping off of the railing only to land on a safety ledge below. Driving part of the main plot of the film is a dance contest that 2001 Odyssey is throwing. Tony wants to be in it, and he wants to win. He's first going to dance with Annette, but he changes his mind and ditches her when he sees a young woman named Stephanie Mangano, who's played by Karen Lynn Gormley, who had a notable role on All My Children. Stephanie isn't impressed by Tony and blows him off repeatedly, but he's persistent and she eventually agrees to be his dance partner, but as long as they keep their relationship professional. At home with his friends and outside of the disco, things aren't so great. Frank Jr. comes home to tell his parents that he's leaving the priesthood, something that upsets them greatly, even though Tony and his brother have a very good relationship. Gus gets jumped by a group of Puerto Rican gang members on his way home from buying groceries. Bobby C. is knocked up his girlfriend and he doesn't want to marry her, and even asks Frank Jr. if the Pope will forgive him if he gets her an abortion, which we all know is not going to happen. Tony borrows Bobby's car to help Stephanie move into Manhattan and sort of half promises to call Bobby later that night, which he never actually does. Tony and his friends attack a Puerto Rican gang named the Barracudas as revenge for what happened to Gus, and then they brag about it to Gus in the hospital. Gus tells them that they may have jumped the wrong guys. At the disco that next Saturday night, Tony and Stephanie win the dance contest, but Tony is upset because he knows that a Puerto Rican couple really should have won it, but the judges were actually too racist to actually give it to them. So he gives them the trophy and he storms out of the club. Stephanie follows him, and after they argue, he attempts to rape her. She pushes him off and she runs away. The knight then proceeds to the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. 
where Joey and Double J rape a very drunk and stoned Annette in the back of Bobby's car. Bobby then climbs the support cables of the bridge and fools around more dangerously than the guys usually do. Tony tries to get him to stop and come to a part of the bridge where it's safe, but Bobby then becomes visibly upset about everything, especially his pregnant girlfriend and the fact that he thinks Tony doesn't care about him because he never called him. Bobby then slips and falls off the bridge to his death in the water below. After the police get Bobby's Bobby out of the river, Tony, fed up with this life in Brooklyn, gets on the train and rides it all night, eventually ending up in Manhattan. He eventually gets to Stephanie's apartment, and he apologizes for everything. He tells her that he wants out of Brooklyn, and that he's considering getting a place in Manhattan. They then agree just to be friends, and the film ends with them sitting together in her window on Sunday morning. There's a lot to unpack about this film, which might be surprising to someone who has never seen it or is unfamiliar with it. And I have to confess, this is the first time I think I've ever watched the R-rated version all the way through on Blu-ray or DVD, or, or well, in this case it was streaming, but uncensored. I know that I watched most of it once before, but that was when it ran on like PIX-11 when I was a kid. And I caught bits and pieces of it on VH1's many airings in the 90s and the early 2000s. Plus, I've seen interviews with the cast on various nostalgia shows that were run endlessly on cable during that time. Truly, Saturday Night Fever is one of those films that you seem to know a lot about without actually even seeing it. But I'm going to go ahead and unpack this as best I can, and I'll start with our main character. I'm not sure what to make of Tony Manero. Uh, to be honest, he's not a hero, per se. I mean, he's definitely the centerpiece of the film, but he's cut from that Holden Caulfield mode of the ang- of the character who's angry at the world, representative of a particular slice of adolescent culture, but he also can't seem to get out of his own way. You are rooting for him on some level, but Tony's a guy who is going to frustrate you and ultimately disappoint you, because I don't know how much the filmmakers want you to really like him. That might not be the best way to put it. There's some sort of guilt, in a way, about liking Tony, because as much as he can be the more upstanding guy in his group, it's not like he ever stops them from doing awful stuff, and I'll get to that later. And he's so directionless that when he says he's going to leave Brooklyn and get a place in Manhattan and make something of himself, you honestly can't help but be skeptical. Still, you want him to actually do it, and I think so much of that is because of John Travolta. Put all the weird Scientology crap and Battlefield Earth stuff aside, John Travolta is incredibly charismatic. And what he brings to Tony Manero is all of that, plus a sense of cool that anyone else would have just pissed away because they'd be too busy chewing the scenery. The famous film critic Pauline Kael, who reviewed the film for The New Yorker, summed up Travolta in the role really well. She said, Travolta gets so far inside the role he seems incapable of a false note. Even the Brooklyn accent sounds unerring. At its best, though, Saturday Night Fever gets at something deeply romantic. The need to move, to dance, the need to be who you like to be. Nirvana is the dance. When the music stops, you return to being ordinary. Travolta was nominated for Best Actor, and deservedly so. He lost, by the way, to Richard Dreyfuss, who won for The Goodbye Girl. Moreover, Travolta's performance gets the point across that Tony is different. It's definitely different than these losers he's been hanging around with. And that the reason for that dancing means so much to him is that he doesn't have ever anything else going for him. He does well with the job at the hardware store, but there's a point where he gets a raise and his boss points out how the other guys working in the store have been there for 18, 20 years. And you see Tony's face fall because obviously he's thinking, is that going to be me? Plus... There's also his family. Every time you mention Frank Jr., you gotta cross yourself. He's a priest, ain't he? Father Frank Jr., your brother. Your mother doesn't have too much to cross yourself about these days. You're so jealous of Frank Jr. Oh, shut up, will you? Hey. Where are you going? And hey, the shirt, watch the shirt, stupid. Oh, come on. Come on. All right, come on. Manager, manager. Eat. Go ahead. Eat, eat. I got more pork chops than my spaghetti. What do you mean you got more pork chops? I'm out of work. Yeah, well, as long as we got a dollar left, we eat good in this house. What? Yeah, I might even get a job myself. 
I tell you, Bill. 25 years in construction work, I always brought him a paycheck. What, six, seven months I'm out of work? And all of a sudden, what? You hit me. And talking back. All right, all right. Talking about getting a job and hitting all right, me. All right, no hitting, no slapping at the dinner table. Okay, that's the rule. Hmm? And you was the one who's hitting. You never hit me before. Never. Not in front of the kids. One pork chop! One! Hey, Frank! It's disgusting, right? Sick. We just washed the hair. Yeah. You know, I work on my hair a long time, and you, and you hit it. He hits my hair. Take care of this hair. I'm gonna take a walk. Don't you walk me to church later? Didn't you go already today? Yeah, confession. I gotta go back and pray for something. For what? I gotta pray for Father Frank Jr. to call me. And to call him direct. I want him to call me. A son should call his mother. Wait a minute. You're going to church to have God make Frank Jr. call you? Right. Unbelievable. <laughs> you know, you're turning God into a telephone operator. That's also from the beginning of the movie, right after the extended Tony in his underwear getting ready to go out on a Saturday night montage. And actually, all of those provide more layering to his character. The line about the hair is kind of funny, but if you really look at that scene, it's tense. You're supposed to get the feeling that there's a lot of anger and resentment there. And his father... Well... He's a man who's been laid off and therefore feels emasculated. And while he probably loves his kids, you can tell he's definitely really hard on them. And maybe he's taking out some of his frustrations on them. I'm not going to use the word abuse. Because I don't want to project the sensibilities of 2017 onto 1977 very much. But at the same time, I can't exactly condone the really violent reaction he has to Tony taking up extra pork chop and this is something I'll definitely bring up in a few minutes after I talk about some of the other characters starting with Tony's friends because Tony's friends are losers Tony's friends are the guys you hang around with and who pull the same stupid crap at 20 21 or 22 that they used to at 15 16 or 17 they're the guys you start to outgrow after a while and who then piss and moan about you not being fun anymore or forgetting where you came from. None of these guys is going to make anything of themselves. And it's telling that Bobby C. has already knocked up his girlfriend and he goes on a downward spiral to the point where he winds up dead. I mean, they're still rumbling with other gangs like this is West Side Story. And well, they're stuck. And it's not entirely their fault. They're stuck in a place in a culture that isn't letting them be more than what they are at a time when they really don't have a fighting chance. This is New York in 1977. This is the height of the dirty, crime-ridden Big Apple that you see in other movies of the time, like Taxi Driver. This is post-Vietnam post-Watergate America, the first year of the Carter administration, when the economy was starting to languish and the country would be mired in what was often referred to as a malaise. In fact, I want to say Carter was the one who came up with the term. It wasn't a particular optimistic time, which is why you have this juxtaposition in the film of the dancing and the disco and the directions, as well as the directionlessness, sometimes rough lives that these kids lead. But I don't like Tony's friends. Joey and Double J are scumbags. I mean, they just don't take advantage of Annette at the end. They flat out rape her in the back of Bobby C's Impala. And that's honestly a tough scene to watch. Annette has shown up at the dance club. She gets wasted off her ass. And then she approaches Tony with a purse full of condoms. Because earlier in the movie, the two of them were going to have sex. And then he stopped it when she told him she wasn't on any form of birth control. And neither of them had any condoms. And honestly, I think it's implied that they expect her to get them like he expected her to get them. But Tony doesn't want to do it. And then later is there, uh, so she shows up with the condoms and she shows them to Tony and she's really, really drunk. And Tony's like, no. 
And as they're all leaving the club for the bridge, Joey and Double J tell the other guys that Annette's agreed to have sex with all of them. Tony actually tries to get her to leave, but the guys stop him from doing that. And then when they're having sex with her, she's screaming and crying. And Badham stages the scene to make it as uncomfortable as possible for the viewer and to make it part of an entire night that escalates because it ends with Bobby C. falling off the bridge just a few minutes after they're done. And I feel for Bobby C. probably more than any of Tony's friends. He seems like he's the runt of the group, the one that doesn't quite didn't fit in. He's the butt of the joke, probably. He's got an actual problem, though. And he's got an actual problem that everyone seems to be blowing off. And it comes to the head at the end when he loses it, and then he falls to his death. Hey, Bobby! Hey, you punk! Tony! <laughs> Look at me! Look at you, punk! Bobby, get down! <laughs> it's too dangerous! Look at me, Tony! Hey, Tony! Look at me! Look! Hey, Tony! <laughs> I'm not kidding, Bobby. Get down from here. I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm all right, Tony. I'm all right. Watch me. <laughs> hey, Tony, look at me. That's crazy. Oh. Now, you do, now you're being crazy. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. I'm doing it's it. Dangerous look at me. Look, look at me. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. sends Tony to Stephanie's place in a long scene of him just riding the subway that's shot perfectly because he's wearing that iconic white suit, but he's leaning up against a graffiti-strewn subway car wall, bruised from fighting with the Puerto Rican gang earlier in the film and just looking destroyed. And of all people to go to, Stephanie is probably the best one because she's honestly a lot like Tony. When we first meet her, she's dancing in the club, and Tony runs. Then Tony runs into her in the dance studio, where he's been, like, getting time to practice for this dance competition. And he hits on her, and she rejects him, and they strike up this friendship. And the whole time, she's bragging about this job she has in Manhattan. She's dropping all the names of all the celebrities she said she's talked to, or set up meetings for, or been in lunch meetings with, or whatever. And we all know it's bullshit posturing. Okay, Liz, I like it. We could dance together. That's it. We could just dance together and uh, nothing more, nothing personal. I don't want you coming on to me. Uh -huh. Because I don't think guys like you anymore for one thing. You're too young, you haven't got any class, and yeah, I'm sick of jerk-off guys ain't got their shit together. Oh, come on, it's easy to get your shit together. All you need is a salad bowl and a potato masher. Get your shit together. Would you like to know what I do? It's not necessary. I'll tell you what I do. I work in a paint store, and I got raised this week. Right, you work mm. in a paint store, right? Yeah. You probably live with your family, you hang out with your buddies, and on Saturday night you go, you blow it all off 2001, right? That's right. You're a cliche. You're nowhere on your way to no place. What do you got, a fucking stairway to the stars or what? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I'm taking a course night to the new school. Next semester I'm gonna take two. Now you, you probably didn't get no college, did you? No, I did not. Well, did you ever think about going to college? No. 
Not ever? No, Jew. Well, not back then, no. What the fuck you bugging me about for? Well, well, why not? Why didn't you ever want to go to college? Oh, Jesus Christ. I didn't. But then there's the scene where he helps her move in. He's Bobby. He's borrowed Bobby's car, and they go across the bridge, and they've they've got her stuff, and he runs into her boyfriend, or at least the guy she's kind of with, and probably sleeping with, because well, he's her ticket out of Brooklyn, and we actually do see her drop all of this pretense for a split second when she goes back into the car with Tony and he gets pissed at her. Stephanie, who is that guy? Oh, he's a, a ranger, record producer. He wants to do films. Oh, he's going to move now to a more expensive apartment. I met him at the agency. He didn't want his wife to know how much money he had until the divorce was final. Come on, let's go. I mean, who is he to you, Stephanie? That's what I'm talking about. He's a friend of mine, okay? He's a friend. And I was living with him for a little while. Are you in love with this man or what? I mean, tell me tell me the story. I mean, that's all I'm asking. No, I'm not. We, we, had, we had a thing, you know? It, it didn't work out, and it's over now, and he's my friend, and he still likes me. He likes, he likes you to have uh, to have you around for a quick peace when, when he feels like he it. Help right? me, man. You don't know what it's like at that place. It's crazy. You don't know shit. You know? I didn't know how to do stuff, so I go to him and I would ask him, and he and he would tell me how to do things, and then I go back to work and everything would be all right. Otherwise, I'd be walking around like an idiot, going, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And he helps me. He, he does. Helps you. Helps you what? Get in and out of the sack. Oh, Is that what he helps you do? He helped me. Sure. What the hell do you expect me to do, man? What do you expect me to do? He helped me. Don't cry about him. I mean, you know. All right, so we helped you. That's good for you. All right, come on. We, we, let's get out of here. I'm sorry. Don't worry about nothing. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about nothing. So in some ways, Stephanie's just as lost, although she's moved on in her life better than he has at this point. And then, well, there are a number of problematic things in the movie if you're looking at it through a modern-day lens, and they all all wind up taking Tony down as a character and make, make him more frustrating or disappointing at times than a hero, a guy you want to be, a guy you look up to. I've already mentioned the scene where the two guys rape Annette in the back of the Impala and why Tony did try to get her not to get in the car in the first place. He didn't put up much of a fight when he was shot down by his two friends. Then there's the fact that he actually try, he actually does try to rape Stephanie. He forces himself on her and she just smacks him around and runs away. And on top of that, you have this undercurrent of racial tension, racial slang, racist language, and behavior that I should be cringing at and do cringe at when I watch the movie. And all of this, I think, are supposed to be signs that I'm supposed to condemn Tony and hate him, maybe? But I don't find that easy to do. And while I don't want to say it's because, well, it was a different time, because I think that's too much of an excuse, there actually is some truth to that. Furthermore, the way all this is portrayed, the rape and the abuse and, and, and the whatever racist undertones there are and things like that, it's not as a way to glorify it. It's not as a way to justify it. It's not as a way to explain it away or make excuses for it. But to show it 
as it is for you to judge, for you to figure out, for you to contemplate. And I think there are three particular moments that I think make you want to root for Tony to get out of all of this because he's in danger of being sucked into all of this permanently. First, you've got advice from his brother, Frank Jr., who comes home after quitting the priesthood and shows himself to be as lost as his younger brother. It's good to see you. You too. Yeah. You look good. No, I don't. You do. You look wonderful. You checking out my trophy? Oh, yeah, that's you, huh? Yeah. First prize. Looks just like you. <laughs> hey, what'd you say to them downstairs? They look crazy. They look like zombies, like, like somebody died or something. I think they're in shock, though. In shock? How come in shock? I'm uh, leaving the church, Tony. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Leaving the church. Tell me another one. <laughs> I'm leaving the priesthood. Oh, come on, Frank. Don't fool around like that. You think I'm losing my hair? It looks awful thin right over here and here. Are you, are you serious? Can I borrow some of your clothes until I buy some? I don't want to wear the uniform. I'm sorry, Frank. I really am. I'm sorry. What are you sorry about? You got fired, huh? <laughs> I didn't get fired. I quit. You quit? Yeah, you can do those things, you know? What, um, what did Mom say? What, what did she say about it? She said, Dear Lord, what am I going to tell Teresa and Marie? And Dad, what did you say about shame it? Shame, both of them. They're ashamed, right? You ashamed of me, Tom? Didn't ask why or nothing? Nah. I think they're afraid to. Like I might say, celibacy. You, are you gonna sleep here tonight? You wanna sleep in, in my room? Yeah, I thought I, thought I would. Alright, you can. I got your blankets for you. Then. You have the dance contest where Tony gives away the trophy to the Puerto Rican couple because he knows they were better than him and Stephanie and sees that the judges just wanted to, the white guy to win. And it's done in a way that's not some sort of overwrought stand against oppression. Travolta's not chewing scenery. There's no triumphant music playing at the end. They don't walk out arm in arm or they all don't dance together or anything. No. He walks up to them, he gives it to them, he says... You were better than us. You deserve this. And he leaves. And his friends are like, what the hell did you just do? And it, again, it shows in a more realistic way that sort of the sort of racial tension that was in the film, rather than having it be sort of a big um, speechifying moment. Finally, there's the very end when he shows up at Stephanie's place and she's pissed off. In fact, the phrase I believe she uses is, it's the first time I've ever let a known rapist into my place. But then they talk, and the conversation and the movie ends with this. Thinking of Howard? Think you could be friends with a girl? Could you stand being friends with a girl, huh? The truth? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I could try. That's all I could say, Stephanie. I could try. So yes, there's something quite problematic about Saturday Night Fever's last sequence, but I don't think that this condemns the movie to a dustbin of dated movies that are now more offensive than what you thought they were. Certainly not glorifying rape. That whole night is presented as a downward spiral that ends tragically. What the guys do to Annette is part of that, and that's what we're made to feel. It seems like it 
I don't even want to say it's excusing it, but Tony doesn't take a stand, and that is a little problematic. I mean, you would think that he would confront them, or maybe it's internal, and that's what Batam is going for. In fact, Batam's approach to the film, especially these scenes, is quite verite at points. So I don't know if, if some sort of overwrought confrontation would have worked in the same way it wouldn't have worked inside the disco. Tony's an incredibly conflicted person by the end of the movie, and Travolta helps him make him utterly three-dimensional, and a three-dimensional character will be an incredibly flawed character. So as I said earlier, it shows things for what they are and encourages you to start a conversation. And, well, I don't come from Brooklyn. My dad was from Brooklyn. I come from Long Island, and I grew up a lot of around a lot of people like this though i mean even though they weren't like full-fledged brooklyn i know a lot of a lot of people like this and you know they're the characters in this sometimes it seems a little stereotypical but honestly i i have to wonder is this just because this is where the stereotype comes from and I think it's played incredibly accurately in terms of attitude of the characters and the dialogue of the characters and their interaction with one another. I especially uh, like Karen Lee Gormley's portrayal of Stephanie, who's really a tough Brooklyn chick who's putting on airs when everything she does in Manhattan. Furthermore, I like how when she has that moment of vulnerability in the argument in the car with Tony, the film doesn't go into the direction of having of him saving her through their romantic involvement. In fact, it doesn't even go in the opposite direction, just simply wind up together or whatever. One of the comments in the YouTube clip that I played at the ending was someone wishing they had gotten together at the end. But I have to say that her wanting to be his friend probably because she sees that he needs a friend and perhaps that she does think that he's a good guy is more realistic and quite frankly, more mature. And so what you have here after all of that is not just a disco movie. Saturday Night Fever can actually be placed on a list of great end of adolescent or disillusionment with the world at, at the end of adolescence films. This film definitely takes cues from American Graffiti, and I think I'd even pair it with Days Confused for a look at the 70s. Plus, even though I've actually never seen this film, Knowing about it, reading about it, uh, kind of wanting to see it somewhere in my list is another film that came out in 1995, which was the movie Kids. And seeing a description of that, I see a lot of connection or similar themes or motifs or something that you could have a, you could have kind of a, a little library, a playlist, if you will, of these movies. The other list I would put this on that doesn't have to do anything to do with disco or the 70s is lists a list of great films about New York City. New York and Brooklyn are almost characters in themselves in the Saturday Night Fever. And there's a reason that we don't start with the film the film with a shot of John Travolta dancing or a disco club musical number. But we start with aerial footage of Lower Manhattan and then Brooklyn. Like I said, the movie was shot on location and it has this authentic lived-in feel that a New York movie that's set in Manhattan but shot in Toronto or Vancouver never really does. No respect to Toronto or Vancouver, by the way. Moreover, as much as this movie shows Italian Brooklynite stereotypes, as I mentioned, like I said, I can't tell if I think it's stereotypical because this is where this comes from. I don't feel like it's a parody. I feel like it's played very straight and very real, and they want us to feel like this is what it really is. I mean, Tony Manero is not Andrew Dice Clay. He very much feels like a real person, and I have to say that this is one of two dominant images I have in my mind of what I think of when I hear the word Brooklyn. I think of Saturday Night Fever and Travolta and Dirty 70s New York City, and I also think of the 40s and 50s Brooklyn of my father's youth, complete with the Dodgers. The less said about Brooklyn in its current state, probably the better. Frickin' hipsters. But there is one last thing I want to talk about when it comes to Saturday Night Fever, and that's the music, which I'll get to right after this. You are about to witness history in the making. 
Hi there, this is Todd from Forgotten Films, and if you spend all your time watching new releases, then you need to broaden your movie horizons. And a great way to do that is by joining me for the Forgotten Filmcast. We don't talk about the new releases, we don't even talk about the classics. We talk about the movies that time forgot. On each episode, I'm joined by another film blogger to discuss a film that may or may not be worth rediscovering. So look for the Forgotten Filmcast on iTunes, Podomatic, and wherever you find great podcasts. talk about Saturday Night Fever without talking about its impact on popular culture, which is just the most iconic film featuring disco. And that was the most popular dance music of the late 1970s and probably the 70s as a whole. Disco rose to the mainstream in the middle of the decade. It was still riding high by the end of 77. In fact, Studio 54 opened up on April 26, 1977, and that would close in February of 1980, which is around the time that disco really was on its way out. A number of pop culture sites will place the death of disco in 1979, specifically right around the time of Disco Demolition Night in Comiskey Park. And I think that's a little bit of revisionist fiction because... Of, because of the way people like to think of um, trad trends and fads and things like that having particular end dates because it just works better in our minds. But disco held on for at least a couple of years after 1979. And although I'm not a true authority or historian of pop culture, I mean, I try, but <laughs> if I were, if I really were, charting out the death of disco i'd probably say closer to the end of studio four in february of 1980 so what badham and paramount did in 1979 was capture the zeitgeist and i actually think i'm using that word correctly they captured the zeitgeist in a way that few movies ever really do because when you've got a film that's made about a trend or a fad it's hard to have it come out exactly at the right time especially since it takes so long for films to get made and by the time it's released the trend might be over travolta had training as a dancer and as a singer and he'd been in the touring company of greece a few years earlier of course he would go on to place danny zuko in the film adaptation the next year 1978 and there are a number of dance scenes in the film. The one with the iconic white suit, which, by the way, Gene Siskel once owned after it. He bought it at auction. And that's the one featured on the film's poster. Is the dance contest scene at the end of the film. And that scene is well done. But the scene where Travolta puts a finer point on how much he owns this movie is a solo dance scene set to You Should Be Dancing by the Bee Gees. And this is a scene, by the way, which starts with a girl named Connie, who's played by Fran Drescher, wanting to dance with him. And then him going solo because she's really a terrible dancer. Seriously, watch the scene. It's the definition of the word presence. And the soundtrack certainly contributes, which is why it was such a huge film. And the soundtrack certainly contributes, which is why it was as huge as the film. The Saturday Night Fever soundtrack was released on November 15, 1977, and stayed on top of the album charts for 24 straight weeks. That's six months, people. It was the best-selling album in the country for six months, and it remained on Billboard's album charts until March of 1980. It went on to sell 15 million copies, and up until the soundtrack to The Bodyguard, came out in 1991, this was the best-selling soundtrack of all time. It spawned seven number one songs on the Billboard Pop Singles charts, and it won several Grammys. 
including Best Pop Vocal Performance by a Group for How Deep Is Your Love by the Bee Gees, Best Pop Vocal Performance by a Duo or Group for the entire album, Album of the Year, Best Arrangements of Voices for Stayin' Alive, and Producer of the Year, Barry Give, Albie Colton, and Richard Carl Richardson, who were the album's producers. It also won a Hall of Fame award from the uh, from uh, the Academy in 2004. And along with the movie, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack has been placed in the collection of the Library of Congress for being culturally significant. Now, the music that most people remember from the soundtrack is that of the Bee Gees. And Wikipedia has a quote from Robin Gibb about being approached to write the songs and how there really was not any sense that the film was going to be a huge, huge hit. We were recording our new album in the north of France, and we'd written about and recorded about four or five songs from the new album when Stigwood, that's Robert Stigwood, the producer of the film and the and the soundtrack, rang from L.A. and said, we're putting together this little film, low budget, called Tribal Rights of a Saturday Night. Would you have any songs on hand? And we said, look, we can't. We haven't any time to sit down and write for a film. We didn't know what it was about. The band wrote and performed five songs, all of which became hits. Stayin' Alive, How Deep Is Your Love, Night Fever, More Than a Woman, and You Should Be Dancing. All of which are pretty amazing songs, to be honest. I think I would have made fun of me for saying that when I was a teenager, by the way, because when I was a teenager, I thought disco in the 1970s was stupid. But with age comes wisdom, and with age and wisdom come an appreciation for the Bee Gees. They also wrote the song If I Can't Have You, which was performed by Yvonne Elliman, and the soundtrack featured a previous Bee Gees hit, which was Jive Talkin'. Plus, the rest of the album is more or less a definitive disco compilation. Here's the track listing. It's a long one, because it's a double album, so there's four sides. Side A has the Bee Gees performed and written songs, Stayin' Alive, How Deep Is Your Love, Night Fever, More Than a Woman, and then the Yvonne Elliman version of If I Can't Have You, which are really featured prominently in the film. Side B has the Walter Murphy piece, A Fifth of Beethoven, which is based on Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. More Than a Woman by Tavares, Manhattan Skyline by David Shire. And David Shire composed the music for the movie, so the score, essentially. So some of these might be instrumental pieces that Shire wrote. Calypso Breakdown by Ralph McDonald. Side C, uh, which is disc two. Um, David Shire's Nine and Disco Mountain. Cooling the Gang's Open Sesame. Jive Talking by the Bee Gees. You Should Be Dancing by the Bee Gees. Boogie Shoes by Casey and the Sunshine Band. Side D, Salsation, another uh, instrumental piece by David Shire. KG by MMSB, Disco Inferno by The Tramps. Honestly, to get the whole disco experience, I'd probably add a few more songs. Maybe The Hustle, I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor, clearly. Turn the Beat Around by Vicky Sue Robinson is another one. And I would throw in albums probably by The Village People and Definitely Donna Summer. Donna Summer's greatest hits, I have that on vinyl. It's an essential disco record. And while I haven't listened to this entire album, and I'm going really off what songs I do know, I will say this is a very solid, well-crafted soundtrack, and is one of the essential soundtracks because of the way it represents the movie as well as the style of the music and the decade in which it exists. And that's it for me and Saturday Night Fever. As of my recording this, which is June of 2017, it's available for streaming on Hulu for free. You can get it on DVD through Netflix, of course. Uh, Netflix may have it for streaming at some point in the future. You can get it on Amazon, both in physical copy and through streaming. And I would recommend checking it out. It's two great hours. It's way more than what you've come to expect from what seems like a billion bad disco parodies over the years. Travolta's amazing in it. And it really is an essential 1970s film. I'll be back in a minute with some feedback and to wrap this up. So are we going to be working together? Really? Worst film you ever saw? Well, my next one will be better. It's the Film and Water Podcast. The Film and Water podcast covers movies new and old, classic, and uh, not-so-classic. Proud member of the Fire and Water podcast network, 
available weekly on fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Once again, I'm back. I've got some feedback and emails for you, so let's check them out. First up is an email from Sean Strawbridge. He's writing about episode 74, which was the Trends episode. And he writes, Hi, Tom, long longtime listener here, and I thought since you urged listeners to send you feedback, I would do just that. I just finished listening to Pop Culture Affidavit episode 74, and while I enjoyed listening to you talk about many of the more recent incredibly annoying fads to sweet pop culture, bottle flipping, etc., word, it was when you hit upon the 80s era fad of garbage pail kids that I was suddenly struck by a sequence of memories that I thought I'd share. Awesome. I think we happen to be roughly in the same age group, as I was about 10 years old when these little gross little sticker card hybrids became insanely popular. I don't remember how or when exactly I had first discovered Garbage Pail Kids, but I know I started picking them up with Series 2 and continued on through Series 4 and maybe early into Series 5. I had a zillion of these, and I would pick up a pack or two every time I went down to the little convenience market that was by my house. I was primarily into purchasing comics and candy, but sometimes I would glance at the trading card section and randomly get packs of cards that struck my fancy. I wasn't really into collecting sports cards, but I did love to collect movie-based trading cards as a youngster, Star Wars, E.T., Indiana Jones, Batman, etc., and for whatever reason saw the GPK cards and thought they were funny. Hey, I was 10, what the hell did I know? Anyway, hearing you talk about all these brought those memories of buying those back. I remember I had hundreds of these things, although I have no idea now whatever happened to them all. Um... Yeah, like I said, I don't know what happened to mine. I, you know, as I was reading this, I was thinking, um, I know they were put out by Tops, And maybe somebody can confirm this. Did they package bubble gum in with them? I know up in, even to the early 90s, uh, Tops was still pulling, putting bubble gum in the baseball cards. And yes, I would eat the bubble gum in the baseball cards, even though it was pretty, pretty nasty, pretty bad. Not really bad. Baseball card bubble gum was just kind of, tasteless like you'd bite into it it would shatter and you'd gather it together into some sort of gum ball in your mouth and it didn't really have any it's almost like all the taste had gone out um if i had a favorite gum in as a kid it was like the bazooka joe gum i love bazooka joe gum or bazooka gum and bazooka joe comics i used to get them uh at the barber shop when I would go because you could get bubble gum or a lollipop. So I would get, so you either get a dum dum or a bazooka Joe, a bazooka gum. And to this day, by the way, I still grab a lollipop after getting a haircut. I have some hair left. Stella, sh- stop, stop snickering. Anyway, back into uh, Sean's email. The Garbage Pail Kids have enjoyed a comeback of sorts recently with new series of the cards being produced and a comic book one-shot coming out and an art book that was released not too long ago. I think the nostalgia wave for them has since died down a bit, though. That's probably for the best. I remember the Garbage Pail Kids movie coming out and even to my 12-year-old kid wondering, even as a 12-year-old kid wondering, why? I never saw the film until recently. It's available in its entirety on YouTube. And I have to say, it's without a doubt one of the most disturbing and confusing movies of all time. Watch it if you dare, but it may scar you for life. It's so weird, man. So weird. By the way, I would totally love an episode of Toy Fives of the 80s and 90s. That would be a great episode. Anyway, I just thought I'd drop a line to say I love the podcast and keep the great work. Thank you. 
Uh, thank you for your email, Sean. It is that's somewhere on my list is like toy fads of the eighties and nineties or, or or something to do with that. It's it's been a while, and 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 I these sorts of things pop up in my mind when I'm usually with Brett because I'm, I'm looking at his, all his toys here right now, and I'm like, we're gonna be culling a lot of these. So um, it, it's definitely on my mind. Maybe maybe as I go through the the rest of the year and stuff, and I'm looking for stuff to talk about. But thank you for your email, and anybody else, please email in. I, I love getting them. Uh, I do have a few Facebook comments and episodes of Origin Story that I want to get through. Uh, J. David Weeder, fellow podcaster, whose several shows include Dave Daredevil Podcast, which I think is ending. Dave Does Podcast. Does he? It's the Dave Cave, which is a Batman podcast. And I want to say there's a Wonder Woman one you're putting together. I'm blanking at the moment, Dave. I'm sorry. Anyway, he commented on episode 11 of Origin Story where I briefly talked about the Top Gun anthem. And he said, I had to take a break during episode 11 to listen to the Top Gun anthem. It still holds up. I'm loving this retrospective, especially since we seem to be reading a lot of the same comics. Then I have one from Matt Haney, who says, Hi, I just wanted to say I recently discovered the Origin Story podcast, and I love it. I read a lot of the same comics and enjoy the nostalgic stories you add. Anyway, keep it up for fantastic work, and I plan to check out some other shows. And thank you. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, uh... Matt for uh, writing in and commenting uh, and please keep them coming. I, I love it. I've been doing this for 75 episodes, 75 episodes. I didn't think I'd get to, I was pretty surprised when I got to 50 a couple of years ago. And uh, who knows as I, as, as in country and origin story wind down, I may be able to get more of these out on a semi-monthly basis as opposed to a monthly basis, especially as life gets a little less hectic in the coming months. But anyway, that'll do it for now. Uh, I'll be back in, in July with one more episode, another episode. Uh, I'm not sure at the moment what it's going to be. I'm sure I'll enjoy putting it together. For now, you can check out the blog and come back for more origin story over the course of the summer. That'll wind its way down into September, and then there'll be an episode in November, and that'll finish up. And as always, thank you for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review at illustrative purposes only, so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.